At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Right now in fast, our housing stocks and home improvement names sending the markets a message about where rates and inflation are going ahead of earnings season and the Fed's next meeting. Plus, one Wall Street firm's blue outlook for Microsoft's cloud business. Is this a warning sign for the rest of the sector about a spending slowdown ahead? Then a new round of stock trading troubles in Washington. A look at the lawmakers who made moves in bank stocks around the time of the Silicon Valley bank collapse. And later, Bitcoin's new milestone to look at what's behind the crypto's climb back above 30K. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Steve Grasso, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, and Tim Seymour. But we start off with some signs of strength in one of the most interest rate sensitive areas of the market. The Philadelphia Housing Index jumping 2.5% today for its biggest gain since February. Every component rising with the biggest gains coming from mortgage companies Radian and Penny Mac, as well as builders like DR Horton and LGI homes. Housing adjacent names also getting bumped today. Mohawk Industries and Whirlpool both soaring on the back of two separate upgrades. So as we await tomorrow's all-important CPI print, is the market telling us that the Fed has already done what it's going to do, Guy? That's the hope, clearly, right? And I, I would probably agree with that. The Fed's probably within 25 basis points of being done, which is fine. And I think a lot of people would acknowledge that's probably the right course of action. My contention, so far incorrectly, is this lag effect will take place at a certain point, and the market, the economy, will start feeling the effect, the impact of 500 basis points of hikes over the last nine months or so. But the names you mentioned, that's one thing we have been bullish. You look at Pulte Homes, for example, comes out PHM. That's within 30 cents or so of an all-time high. Look at that name, DHI, another name. Mohawk, which you mentioned, that's fine. Stock's trading 100. It's still down over... 50-something percent from its recent high, but you have nice little double bottom. So I think in some aspects, people are looking at opportunities to trade. In terms of the home builders that we talk about, supply-demand, it's really got nothing to do with the economics. It literally comes down to supply-demand, and they're trading that way. Well, you got two kickers, supply-demand, and then also if you know where the terminal rate is likely to mm-hmm. be, that's a very good thing. You right. know what you're dealing with. Yes, I think it's more that that's sort I mean, if you're out looking for a home now, I think you would feel differently than you did three or four months ago Mm -hmm. about, um, well, prices may have moved down in your favor. But so I think that's part of it. I don't know if the Fed's done or done-ish. And I don't know that it really matters so much because I think we've seen the peak-ish for for rates and, and for mortgages. But I think the overbuilding, or lack thereof, rather, has been so important. There is nothing remotely close to the overbuilding supply-demand dynamic that we saw in So that's 08. probably what it is. It's more of a supply-demand issue, which is keeping these stocks afloat, versus the rates issue. But to Guy's point, if there's going to be a recession, who's buying a home? So that's the lag effect I believe that you were referring to, correct? I- Yes, I, I think that's probably true. I think there's still some tailwinds to these home builders because, again, it, it is a supply-demand thing, and that takes a long time to wash through. Karen's right. I mean, we didn't have the 0809 access in any way, mm-hmm. shape, or form, and people are still trying to figure this out. So I still think the stocks are ownable. At a certain point, you're going to run into Steve's problem, I think, but that's 
in terms of the stocks, that's probably at the back half of this right. year, early next well, year. Well, I will tell you the only one, one more little added thing is a tailwind, and this could be the early cycle of it. There's a lot of people that are buying homes for cash. That's still an element cash. now. Okay. And that could run its course, and then you could see weakness. Right. Um, Tim, how do you sort of navigate this, especially, you know, you know, you also have a tailwind of input costs coming down. But for right now, right you know, right here, right now, we are seeing employment pretty strong still. So people are still employed, and so they can still buy a house. So even if a recession is coming, we might be in sort of a sweet spot, at least for now. Well, perversely, the, the housing stocks and housing sector have gone up as rates have kind of gone off of that SVB bottom on, on where we bottomed out two years back over 2% today. Um, but I wouldn't be doing cartwheels about this snapback. I mean, the housing stocks traded down as if they were regional banks. And, and, and if you look at the XHB, it's still down, I think, 4% on a five-day. If you look at Masco, if you look at some of the buildings materials, they're down 7 or 8. You look at Otis, you, you, you look at some of the train, you look at some of the HVAC equipment. And, and, and I think, you know, if you look at that, that Whirlpool upgrade today, that was interesting to me because Whirlpool, I think, is a world-class company who, you know, largely is called defensive when 50 percent of demand is just replacement. Uh, supply chain issues hit them as hard as anybody and nothing like a crisis to make a company more efficient. So after trading down 45 percent, I love the call on Whirlpool. I, I don't get carried away with housing. Guy's been right about this move in housing. So, you know, part of it for me is also that I don't want to buy the home builders that are so far off of those lows that that uh, I think you've priced in a lot of good news. Yeah. So we're in within the housing sector because you can be in the builders, you can be in the suppliers, you can be in the retailers. Whirlpool's interesting. Tim points it out. Listen, the home builders, I would understand if people say, you know, you got to pull the ripcord. I'd rather be early than miss the entire move down because it happens very quickly. But a name like Whirlpool, for example, which I think reports at the end of the month, which is fast approaching. To Tim's point, so $260 stock. It got basically not cut in half, but I think it went from 250 down to 160 or so. But in valuation now, you can make a pretty compelling case. And people will start to, I think, layer into some of these names in their earnings. So in terms of trades, they set up pretty well. You know, if, if housing was truly strong on its own, I think you would start to see Home Depot or Lowe's sort of confirm the moves. And when you look at the charts, it is definitely not as powerful as the housing stocks, which mean it's probably a little overdone in the builder world. What do you need to see, though, from them to confirm the move? Do you need to so see you, commensurate rises in a Home Depot? Yeah, I think, I think you, people would get ahead of it and say, OK, if building stocks are going to be OK, they're going to be using a lot more building materials to put into those uh, build, to those houses going forward. Yeah. Karen, what's your thoughts on Lowe's you own, right? I own Lowe's. I yeah. own some Home Depot. Um, I actually own some Whirlpool, um, which I've owned for up and down. So that was, a you know, I could have sold it 50 points ago. Um, I like it, though. I like the, the supply chain issues being uh, helping their uh, margins. So that's good. I also like Zillow because Zillow is asset light mm -hmm. and it's not great when there's not a ton of transactions, but I think that we are going to start to see more transactions. And I love the light model. Uh, I love how they're changing the business model to actually share some of the agent's fees. And I don't know, I think they've done it, you know, that turnabout that they did, the about face of we're in the home buying business and we're out. Right. It was an embarrassing disaster, but I think a really incredible moment for a, for a management team to just say we blew it 
and we're getting out as quickly as we can. And they really did a great job getting out. They top ticked the market. Yeah. So they do have this Redfin. Um, I guess it's a sort of they'll they'll send over a referral and share some fees there. But it's not super cheap here. But I love the asset light part of the business. Yeah. Should we be looking for indicators such as uh, you know private equity firms, Tim, getting in or getting out of housing in order to confirm or <laughs> dispel the moves that we're seeing? Well, they're used to the smart money. They certainly were very smart in post kind of tarp land after the crisis and, and, and buying up a lot of distressed properties. And, and Blackstone was at the top of the list. So, um, you know, give them credit for, for being there. I, I don't think you're seeing that. Um, and I think also some of it is, is partly uh, on the basis of where capital is a little bit different. I, I think the housing market is in, is, is in a very different place than where it was after 2008, 2009. However, I think there is still a very you know, significant regional strength. And I think there are buyers out there. But I, I think it's apples and oranges. And I just get back to you know, a Home Depot. Um, there are stocks that people want to buy when you have those moments, when you have washouts. Home Depot is one of those for me. Um, and, if, and if at 250, it was a stock that, boy, I can't wait to forget to 250 again. I think you're supposed to be nibbling on it here. And, and, and I think this is one of those stocks, especially as you've seen them get through and cut back uh, also on some places where they can be a leaner company. The margins in their pro business continue to be very strong. Uh, and I think their digital business is part of why their margins and their multiple deserve to be higher. It's interesting, you know, and you can't do this, I understand, but if you were to back out the move we saw in December of 21, November, December, when stock was $400 because everybody was flocking to Home Depot. I mean, you sort of back that out and you look at this over a 10-year period, it's been a very orderly move to the upside. We're skewed, obviously, because it cascaded lower over the last year. But to Tim's point, even at the current levels, 295 or so, it's trading at a market multiple, which in Home Depot world is actually very reasonable. And you have until May 16th, I think, in terms of earnings. So you've got some runway, I think, to be long the stock as well. All right. Well, barring a surprise jump in inflation tomorrow, our next guest believes the street is mostly wrong about the Fed's next move. Paul McCauley is PIMCO's former chief economist. He now teaches at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. Paul, great to have you with us. Um, wrong in predicting 25 basis points at the next meeting? I think the Fed's going to be on hold at the next meeting. So I disagree with where the front Fed funds futures are priced. And I don't think that the street at large, uh, my old economic community, uh, is uh, convinced there's 70% odds. That's where the marketplace is. I think we're having a very lively debate uh, in the community. And I think we're having a very lively debate at the Fed. And I think uh, that uh, President Goolsby's speech this afternoon was absolutely marvelous and framed where the debate will be uh, going into May 3rd. So if they pause at this next meeting in May, does that pull forward a pivot, a pivot meaning a cut? Yes, it does. Uh, we pause and then a pivot. I think the last hike back on the 22nd of last month will prove to be the last hike but they certainly would not be declaring that at this stage of the game. Uh, they will be declaring essentially, I think, that they're going to pause and they're going to look at the data coming in, recognizing that what's going on with the stress in the banking system uh, is going to work in tandem with what they've already done with 500 basis points worth of tightening almost. Uh, so I don't think there will be a table pounding declaration that this thing is over at the next meeting, but unambiguously, I think there should be a pause. Uh, and I think that as we move out 
uh, in the next week or two uh, that the street will move in that direction from the standpoint of price and the odds. Paul, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So if you're right, let's say they pause and they have this somewhat dovish and we'll look at the data kind of um, take on, on where we stand right now. Where do you think things need to be in terms of the CPI or, or uh, unemployment for them to actually pivot and cut? I think you need to have continued disinflation uh, in order to get the pivot. Uh, and I think you're going to get that. I think you're going to get that. Uh, and I think also that we need to see some more softening in the labor market. We've already seen uh, a slowdown from where we were. We're seeing uh, deceleration in the wage sides. So I basically say more of the same, both on the disinflation that's in train and also the deceleration uh, in the labor market. Just more of the same uh, for another three to six months. Uh, I think is the raw material of them pivoting. Because remember, we're starting from a, from a standpoint of an inverted yield curve, a deeply inverted yield curve. And that in itself has profound negative pressure on the banking system. So essentially all of the parts are coming together uh, in a pause and then a pivot. So you don't need to have a recession uh, or another run, which I don't think that we will get. You just need to have more of what's in train and the train move down uh, the line uh, another three to six months. So the backdrop in your view, Paul, for a, an actual cut is not necessarily a recession. That would seem to me that that would just light the fire once again for assets become inflated again if, if the markets aren't actually going to get a recession to see that cut. We're not retraining the markets in terms of how to think about monetary policy. Well, you're basically setting up a construct uh, conceptually, Melissa, that you can't get a cut without a recession. Uh, so by definition, that takes a, a soft landing off of the table. Uh, so I think that Getting all of the variables moving in the right direction is a prerequisite. But also, I cannot overestimate the importance of the starting point being a severe inverted yield curve, which is going to give you a continual bleed of deposits out of the banking system. Not a run, uh, but as Jim Bianco calls it, a walk. Uh, and I think that's going to put pressure on net interest margin or NIMS uh, and will reinforce the pullback in risk appetite by the banking system. So those are all of the ingredients, I think, for a pivot. And that issue of the inverted yield curve is hugely important because its sheer existence uh, magnifies, if you will, uh, the stress and pressure in the banking system. So this is a question I probably would have never asked you, Paul, but I'll ask it to you this time. I mean, if they do actually cut this year and there's not necessarily this hard recession that happens along with it that, that prompts that cut, what do you think happens to the stock market? I would guess that you would say it rallies. And is that the, what the, the Fed market. wants? Yeah, the, the stock market wants to go up. It's wanted to go up this year because you've had long-term interest rates come down or put differently, long duration bond prices go up and the stock market is a long duration uh, asset. It's a, it's a perpetual. Uh, so I think the stock market wants to go up. 
we saw the leadership in the longest duration uh, stocks uh, logically over the last month. And I think as we move out uh, in time and as this scenario unfolds, uh, that you will see a shift in the leadership uh, in the marketplace for the simple reason that the long duration growth stocks have already had a serious party with the long end coming down. When the short end of the yield curve comes down and we re-slope the yield curve, then I think your more uh, garden variety Main Street stocks uh, will catch a bid and this will not be a stock market that is so led uh, by such a few mega, uh, mega growth stocks. Uh, so I think the, the leadership will change over time, but the general direction should be up if you get a pivot uh, and uh, also you don't get a recession. We should ask you about stocks more often, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Paul McCulley, adjunct professor at Georgetown, formerly of PIMCO, of course. All right, but let's play this out. Yeah. The market rallies, regardless of what the leadership is. Mm-hmm. The market goes higher. Is that what the Fed wants? Do they want to reinflate <laughs> that asset? I don't believe so. I don't believe and they, so. And but- they've actually <laughs> stated that. If you, listen, if you go back over the last year or so, I mean, Jerome Powell's been asked about it. I mean, he made a comment maybe nine months or so ago as he was walking off one of the things he was talking at. Oh, by the way, if you're a millennial and thinking about buying a home, think again. That's paraphrasing, but that's effectively what he said. He's talked about the want for asset prices to come down. So I don't think they want that. A cut in the back half of the year might lead to that. But I tell you, if that does happen, you know what's going to rally? Commodities are going to rally again. The inflation genie, which is still not back in the bottle, will remain out of the bottle. And gold, which is going higher, will continue to go higher on the back of a dollar that's going to get zapped. Tim? Well, a couple of things. Professor McCulley uh, was in session and he said two things. He said Wall Street uh, over Main Street this year. And, and when Main Street's having a tough time, Wall Street tends to, to rally. It often does. And think about the sentiment, think about the positioning, and it, it sets up. And it, look at a market that's traded between 38 and 41.50 um, for a long time. And, and we've been consolidating right at the top of that range. I, I, you know, I think it sets it up. And I'd quickly then go to banks and just say, you know, yes, he's talking about NIMS and we've talked about net interest income. Um, but, but, but ultimately, banks didn't get the credit and the tailwind from, from NIMS and net interest, net, net interest income for this Fed move. They've only been thought of as the downside and the flight of deposits. Let's not punish banks for NIMS and margins that they never really had in this run. Um, I think we're worried about banks. And if he says the run of banks are over, and I'm not saying he's, he's, he's got some crystal ball, but, but then the banks are cheap and, and Wall Street does outperform Main Street. And it's just something to think about uh, ahead of these big bank earnings. I, I would not get so hung up on net interest income. It's about balance sheets. Uh, it's about credit for banks. And it's about the discount based upon the world they now operate in, not net interest income. All right, coming up, a cloudy forecast from Microsoft. One analyst cutting estimates for a big segment of the tech titan. Does the weakness suggest dark clouds for the rest of the market, too? That's next. And a big boost for a number of discretionary stocks today. But is the consumer as strong as they seem? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Microsoft dropping more than a percent today, 2% today, making it the Dow's worst performer. The stock struggling after UBS warned of weakness for its cloud segment. Analysts lowering growth estimates for the company's Azure business over the next several quarters, citing spending cuts and slower migration to the platform. The analysts, though, did say Microsoft's investment in open AI could be a positive catalyst for the stock. Um, just wanted to underscore one point, and that is he said that street estimates for Azure are too high. And that's where the disconnect could mean and, downside for the and stock. And that, that, that's been the, the tailwind for these stocks. But just, just remember what we were all talking about on this desk. When SVB collapsed, these stocks got a bid. So that was around March 10th. Someone could correct me on Twitter. All of them got a bid. They all faded or rolled about a week ago. So does it mean that this is going, and they, they all faded right about resistance. So does it mean now the fundamentals will start pushing these names down when before it was all technical. January 24th, they reported second quarter. Stock closed at 240. Mm -hmm. Operating margins came in at 38.7%, down from 43% a year prior. And if you look at Azure growth, I mean, they said it was going to decelerate. They gave third quarter guidance. Stock went down to 223, traded up to 290 on the back of this chat GBT AI stuff that everybody's talking that entire move, all that was was multiple expansion. Mm-hmm. There was nothing good going on with the underlying. That's all it was. W- why is that happening? Because people are getting excited about something that may happen. Now you're hearing analysts say, wait a second, you might want to go back and look at that quarter and look at the guidance because we're coming into earnings. You're probably not going to be happy. Microsoft at 30 times next year's numbers is an expensive stock in this environment. And we were talking about Apple just yesterday with the IDC data coming out, um, saying that Apple lost share, basically. And then we and have Microsoft. And right. so you, you put these two together. These are linchpins of the S&P 500, Karen. Uh-huh. Should we be worried going into earnings season? We lose these two, and that's a huge headwind. Well, we lose these two, but also if you think about it, Alphabet has a big cloud business as well. That's an important driver for them. So if there's something here in Microsoft, uh, and also for Amazon as well, big cloud biz- biggest cloud business, right. Oracle as well. So it's interesting. The piece, it wasn't a draconian cut at all, right? So they're really on the high wire. I am long Microsoft at this multiple. I kind of have a bit of a hard time really sticking by it because I agree, 30 times on what's been, you know, great numbers, but should it be this much for premium? Yeah, but forget about, forget what my, my point was, forget about multiples. This, all of this bounce was a synthetic bounce because people wanted to take their money out of the regional banks and out of the financial system and put it into large cap tech. 
All of the charts look identical. Do you think, though, that part of that shift was, if it was really a fear of where your money is, you would put it in treasuries, which are pretty good. I'm sure. Five. And, and people do that as well. But also, it's, wow, rates, they got to, you know, they can't, they can't keep raising rates. And so, who's a beneficiary of, of, of that tech? I'm sure it could be all of the above. The problem is when you look at all of large cap stock, uh, tech stocks, all of them have the identical chart. They all bounce from March 10th. And they all top at around April 4th, April 6th. All of them. But one quick question, Karen. Why do you hold on to Microsoft then? You're a valuation person. You said it's a hard, hard thing to hold on to. I know. So it's what, a long-term giant it? tax gain, right? Uh-huh. There's that. And, um, and every time I've thought this, ultimately, it does eventually trade higher if you're patient. But at this point, I, I, it's indefensible. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. The consumer showing some muscle as retail and discretionary stocks head north. But can the rally continue? The traders weigh in next. Plus, congressional question marks. Lawmakers trading bank stocks amid last month's turmoil. And it's raising a few eyebrows. The moves they made during the recent financial fracas. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on markets today. Stocks fairly muted ahead of tomorrow's CPI print. The Dow climbing nearly 100 points. It's eighth positive session in nine. The Nasdaq dropping nearly half a percent. The S&P down by less than a hundredth of a percent. Basically unchanged. Our friend Carter Braxton worth pointing out in a note a short time ago that the S&P today is literally his favorite term, a pair of twos. And he adds that going back to 1970 in the more than 12,800 trading sessions, the S&P has finished unchanged just 29 times. That's less than one quarter of one percent. Meantime, some discretionary and retail stocks gaming steam, Ralph Lauren, Newell Brands, Pool Corp, all up big. And CarMax leading the group up nearly 10 percent after reporting earnings this morning. Tim, less than a quarter of a percent of the time the S&P finishes unchanged. Maybe that tells you just how, I don't know, on, on, the, on the wire it is in terms of the CPI and the PPI reports coming out. Yeah, well, and, and retail sales also on Friday. So uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of important data this week on top of bank earnings. And I can understand the, the pair of twos, especially because nobody thought it was going to be here. Um, but I, I just feel like that, that this market has given you a lot of opportunities to trade. So, um, you know, if your blackjack's a higher kind of velocity game than poker, I mean, you know, you, sometimes you throw your hands, you know, the cards back down and you, you wait for the next round to be dealt. I, I you know, pardon the, the Willie, was it Kenny Rogers, I guess, was the gambler? I don't know. So, sorry for all the poker uh, metaphors here. I just, I just feel like 
but you started it. Um, I think you have a case here where this is a market that that's probably why it's interesting, because people have continued to think that the market can't go higher. Meanwhile, back to this breadth conversation, and, and everyone's been right about the reasons for mega cap tech outperforming. It's been a safety trade. Guy pointed out the absurdity of Microsoft and ChatGPT and what that means right here and now. But before all this happened in SVB, the breadth of the market was outstanding. You saw industrials outperforming, transports outperforming, even emerging markets outperforming, resources, certainly energy. Um, that got derailed by SVB. If we're starting to put some of that in the rearview mirror, um, I think we can have the kind of breadth that we actually had before. All right. Coming up, trouble trading out of D.C. Lawmakers making moves in regional bank names amid last month's financial failures. The details on that story next. Plus, the sun seems to be shining on crypto winter. Will the surge continue or is another crypto crush on the horizon? Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Wall Street Journal first reporting that as Silicon Valley Bank was collapsing, a number of lawmakers who are working to deal with the crisis were also trading some of the bank stocks in the eye of the storm. Representative Nicole Maliotakis, a Republican from New York, bought stock in New York Community Bank Corp just two days before one of its subsidiaries agreed to take over Signature Bank's deposits. Maliotakis had discussed Signature's closure with regulators prior to her purchase of NYCB stock. A representative for the Congresswoman told CNBC that, quote, the financial advisor who manages the Congresswoman's portfolio made the recommendation to purchase... I want to know who that financial advisor is. That's pretty good advice. Uh, Representative Earl Blumenauer, Democrat from Oregon, disclosed three bank trades as part of his spouse's retirement portfolio. On March 9th, the day before SVB failed, they bought shares of SVB and sold shares of Bank of America. On March 20th, they sold shares of First Republic. Blumenauer is a co-sponsor of legislation to tighten restrictions on financial firms. And then there is Rep Representative John Curtis, a Republican from Utah. He sold shares of First Republic and Bank of America on March 16th. Those trades were made under a joint fund owned by Curtis and his wife. CNBC has confirmed these trades but not received comments from Representatives Blumenauer or Curtis. So should we be outraged that lawmakers who are setting policy for, in this case, the banks, and have insight into their operations that we may not have are trading these stocks. Let's dive into that with Kate Kelly, New York Times money and influence reporter in Washington and a CNBC contributor. Kate, great to see you again. Great to have you on this topic. Um, you know, I read this article this morning. I'm sure many Americans did and just were absolutely outraged that this is this happened, that this is able to happen. Yeah, Melissa, what's interesting here is that this is perfectly legal as far as we know. Um, the Stock Act of 2012 is, is the main piece of legislation that governs kind of member stock trading and disclosures. And so they've disclosed as they need to. They've made it clear what they did and when. And that is sort of the end of their responsibilities. Of course, they're not allowed to insider trade. None of us are. And the Stock Act reminded members of that. But, you know, I engaged in a six months investigation of congressional stock trading last year with two colleagues here at The Times. And we found that nearly a fifth of the Congress and Senate over a three-year period had engaged in this type of trading, which is to say trading that arguably could have been uh, related to what they were doing in Congress. Maybe they were on a committee taking care of the financial sector, uh, that then they were trading bank stocks in this case. It happens that neither Blumenauer nor Maliotakis nor Curtis is on a relevant banking committee. But you can see other touch points here. Legislation in the one case, discussions with New York regulators about what was going to happen to a New York chartered bank in the other. 
is there any, uh, what is the remedy for this, if, if anything, Kate? Do these guys get a slap on the wrist? I mean, is that, is that it? They won't get anything other than perhaps the headline risk that we're, you know, contributing to with this discussion, right? Because, uh, again, as far as we know, in the absence of other sort of damaging facts, which we don't have, this is perfectly legal. Now, there are legislative fixes uh, that have been under discussion for years in Congress and in the Senate, and some of them have been reinitiated in the new Congress this year. One pretty well-known one is co-sponsored by Abigail Spanberger, Democrat of Virginia, and Chip Roy, Republican of Texas. And they essentially would ban members. Members, uh, from engaging in any sort of trading, uh, they would want people to be in a qualified blind trust and not transact in individual securities, nor allow their immediate family members to do that. A lot of members of Congress think that sort of a maneuver is too extreme. So perhaps we'll see a sort of compromise deal at some point where maybe the uh, disclosure time frame is tightened up. Right now it's 30 days with like a grace period of 15. Maybe that would get shorter. Maybe there would be some limitations put, but not a blanket ban. But so far there has not been the political will to do this that I've seen. Kate, it's Karen. Thanks so much for being on. So you said at the top that they are, you know, the the insider trading laws still apply, but are they immune from an investigation into whether there was insider trading? I mean, some of this looks so bad. The talk about, oh, I made the trade on the recommendation of my uh, advisor. Of my advisor. Maybe she I said to my the advisor, trade. they still made the <laughs> trade, and maybe what you said to my your advisor, hey, something good's <laughs> going to happen in NYB. What should I do? <laughs> I don't. I, right. you know, I mean, I no believe idea it or not, Karen. Am, I think the advisor may be an attempt to say this was sort of done at arm's length. It wasn't my idea. It was my advisor's idea. And when we did this investigation last year, we talked to something like 100 congressional offices. And that was often the explanation. Either my spouse did it, our, our FA recommended it. We had no input. We have what's practically a qualified blind trust. As to your question, though, yeah, absolutely. There's an Office of Congressional Ethics that does investigate this sort of a thing. Uh, there's the Committee on Ethics, which is not known for as much activism. And actually, there's not a ton of transparency into some of the cases they work on. Um, the SEC, the DOJ even, could open investigations whenever they want to. There is one other factor, though, that prevents members oftentimes from being investigated, let alone prosecuted, for some of these trades that some may find questionable. And again, I want to make clear, we don't know that these are uh, illegal in any way. All we know is what the journal told us and what's in the public records. But having said all that, there's the speech and debate clause in the Constitution that essentially says that what Congress does in its line of work should be protected from prosecution. And because of that, and because of sort of differing interpretations of that in, a, in different appellate courts, it's very hard to make these cases. The one example in recent years was Chris Collins from New York. And the fact there was he was on the board of an Australian pharma company. He got material information about that company outside of his congressional work. And it appears passed it on uh, to family members. And he actually was convicted of uh, some insider trading charges on that. But that sort of a prosecution, very rare. And I should say he was pardoned by President Trump. In your investigation, Kate, your longer term investigation, did you find that the, the Congress men and women who, who traded based on, on sort of related information they may have gotten um, while being in Congress, that they had histories of trading, that it wasn't a one off, that it was you know, that they're very active traders, that they typically traded pharma stocks when they were sort of related to a pharma committee or, or whatnot? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So there are some members uh, who file a ton of financial disclosures. A good example is Ro Khanna. 
uh, the Democrat from California. Another would be Mike McCall, the Texas Republican. In both of those cases, they have wealthy spouses who have sort of family trusts, if you will, that trade very actively. So the members themselves say they're not involved. They don't even have visibility. They just file what they're expected to file. And basically, uh, those members' families trade the S&P. So you find that they're in practically everything. What we found more interesting when we investigated were members who were trading a little more selectively and what appeared to be a little more actively, right? Fewer names, not so rare that they only have like one or two stocks, although if that were the case, I would definitely want to take a look at potential committee conflicts. Um, but, but members who trade sort of in a middle zone of, you know, regularly, but not constantly. So you know there's more discretion going on there and you want to know what's mm-hmm. driving their process. Right. Kate, fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. Always great to see you. You too. Kate Kelly of the New York Times, our former colleague. Um, so, I mean, this is nuts. No, the optics are awful. <laughs> it's terrible. It's, they're terrible. You understand why people get exercised. It's both sides of the aisle. Neither are immune from, I mean, it, they should be ridiculed for it. Again, nothing mm-hmm. illegal that we know about, right? But it, it's flat out wrong. And whether it's rule or not, you should be able to stand up and say, listen, I understand that I'm allowed to do this, but the, I understand the optics are awful. I'm not going to do it. But, I mean, go back. This was, remember Robert Kaplan, Dallas Fed, Eric Rosengren, I think the Boston Fed in right. September of 21. They were Fed officials. Right. Those cats were trading stocks. And we got exercised about that. I mean, it goes on all across all different areas of government. If you worked it's nuts. on Wall Street, you wouldn't be able to, to trade stocks. Do you, do you own exactly. single stocks? No. You have to be in a blind a trust or you have to be in a, in a fund that you have zero control over. So why should they have it any different? Why do they go in not millionaires and come out millionaires? That's I mean, has anyone right. ever thought about that? And without writing a book, uh, you know, where, where does that stem from, too? Their net worth before they enter and their net worth after when they leave. There, sh- there should be a study on that. <laughs> I, I want to know if there was really a financial advisor. I mean, you brought up the point right. of, uh, you know, for Nicole Maliotakis. Yes. You know, saying I that mean, the finan- whoever that financial advisor is, they are great. We want them here on Fast Money <laughs> right. because that came from NYCB days before. No, thanks. That was genius. Yes. And then short the other one. No, thanks. Um, <laughs> the SVB two days before. And then get Hillary yeah. Clinton to trade commodities for you, too. So that was an old, an old, old story, and people, the viewers know what I'm talking about there, too. Coming up. A Bitcoin boom, the crypto striking a level it hasn't seen since last June. So is a comeback for real, plus a scalable opportunity? Weight Watcher's parent company could soon enter the obesity drug market. One Wall Street firm says it might just be the kick this stock needs. Don't go anywhere. Back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin topping 30,000 for the first time since last June. The cryptocurrency up by 10,000 bucks in just the past month. Is the crypto craze back on or is another bubble brewing? Karen, you're in Bitcoin. What do you think? I am. Uh, what's the difference between a craze and a bubble? I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> but I saw your interview this morning with Novogratz, which mm-hmm. was interesting. And, you know, basically this idea of two things. One, the Fed raising. That was very important for Bitcoin. And also the bank fear of, you know, I want to have some more security. Um, Both of those have been really good for Bitcoin. I think the disaster of last fall with FTX and all the fraud and then all the, you know, Gemini, Genesis, all of that um, seems to be in the rearview mirror at the moment. I think, though, if the Fed continues, maybe that will cool this this rally a little bit. But if they pause, I think there's more to go. 
Options traders are betting Bitcoin's move higher means even bigger things for one crypto exchange. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Yeah, we're taking a look at Coinbase. Coinbase was one of the busiest single stock options today, traded 1.7 times its average daily call volume. And the busiest were the weekly 75 strike calls. We saw well over 28,000 of those trade for about $1.44 a contract. Buyers betting about 2% of the current stock price that the rally we saw today could continue through the end of the week. Thanks, Mike. Mike Co. for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, one Wall Street firm going overweight on WW, sending shares soaring today. We'll bring you the skinny on what's about analysts so excited. Stick around the trade and more when Fast Money returns. Yeah. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of WW topping the tape today after Goldman Sachs upgraded the stock to a buy with a $13 price target. Goldman all bowled up on the health and wellness company's foray into obesity medications, calling it a catalyst for turnaround. The company, formerly known as Weight Watchers, closing its acquisition of telehealth provider Sequence today, giving it access to drugs like Ozempic and Wigovi. Today's gains almost recaptures the pop the stock got after the deal was announced about a month ago. When you see your business being threatened by a class of drugs, that seems like a smart thing to do. Yeah, it's interesting, right? The Goldman, so Goldman had a $3.80 price target on the stock. Stock got down to $4, so they got that side right. Now they have a $13 price, so this becomes a trading stock, right? I mean, it's still, I think Kim Karen would admit, the company's probably in somewhat trouble, at least the stock, but it doesn't mean you can't trade around it. We've seen stocks go up 200% over the course of a week. And it looks like Weight Watchers is about to have one of those moves. 75 million shares today typically trades two. There's probably some more gas left in this tank. I thought it was an interesting deal, right? Yeah. I mean, they, things are going not, not in the right direction, so maybe this can help them out, though. But I always look to the debt to get a better picture. And this company has a lot of debt. And if we take a look at this is senior debt. Um, that's not a picture of it. But believe me, it goes way down. <laughs> the chart goes way down. 57 cents on the dollar. There we go. So uh, that's telling you there is some concern there about the business continuing to deteriorate. Guy may, those are not, they can mutually exist, mm-hmm. a big trading right. stock and a company that's in a downward trend. Well, our Meg Terrell sat down with the FDA commissioner to discuss the new slate of weight loss drugs hitting the market. Meg, welcome. What do you tell you? Well, Melissa, we talked about a lot of things with these medicines because the use of them is just exploding. You know, Cowan is estimating that this market just for obesity drugs could be $30 billion by 2030. These are the medicines from Novo Nordisk. They have the approved obesity drug Wegovy, as well as the type 2 diabetes drug Ozempic. And then, of course, Lilly has the type 2 diabetes drug Monjaro, where they're waiting for approval in obesity as well. You know, there are a lot of people who are on the label for these medicines who are eligible for them, but there's also a lot of off-label use. I Asked the FDA commissioner what he thought about that. Here's what he said. Off-label use is very common and we can't interfere with the practice of medicine and we won't do that. We need to make our communications clear about where the evidence exists for where the benefits outweigh the risks. I'm a, you know, up until recently I was a very busy practicing doctor and I wouldn't want the FDA telling me what my judgment should be when I see someone who doesn't quite fit the criteria, but there's a good chance it's going to work. But what we should be doing is collecting data about off-label use. 
Now, he's really focused on following those data. And he says in a better system in the United States, we'd actually be able to use the real world data to be able to track the sort of longer term safety and efficacy of these medicines. So he's really pushing to improve that system. But he has a lot of optimism about these medicines. Mel? You know, it's interesting. He he is a doctor, right? A cardiologist. And so I'm wondering, is there any thought, Meg, as to the longer term impact on other franchises of medicine if this drug can actually bring weight down and perhaps prevent other diseases from happening, whether it be heart attacks or diabetes or whatnot? Yeah, you know, there's a hope, of course, that these medicines will translate into fewer heart attacks, fewer strokes, you know, better heart health overall, and, and possibly, you know, other things as well. We are going to see a trial readout on that very question for the use in obesity this summer for the Novo Nordisk drug. I have not yet seen analysts starting to model out the downstream impacts on, you know, heart medicines, for example. And many of these are generic, so it may not have a huge business impact, but it is something really interesting to consider. All right, Meg, thanks. Are on Meg Terrell. Thanks. Tim, where do you stand on, on some of these drugs as catalysts for these stocks? Well, I, you know, there's no question that part of this argument around Weight Watchers is that the addressable market has grown. So off-label, the, the, the concept that America is going to be healthier and that there's a, you know, seemingly a, a, a way either through a prescription or through your brother's friend or something, but that either way, the healthfulness of this is, is critical. And, and I think that uh, you know, the, the core pharma players out there have major pipelines that are uh, there to support this industry. When it gets back to Weight Watchers, part of the Goldman argument is the addressable market size has just grown so dramatically that it just takes a small piece of that. On top of, say what you want about Weight Watchers, but they do have the brand equity where they can almost be the conduit to, to, to complement that. And I think that's the main argument here. All right. Up next, final trades. Trade, Tim Seymour. Starbucks. So I'm long the stock. I, I'm selling upside calls around 110 to 115. I, I just think it, you know, that implies 32 to 33 times. I think it's rich. I love the company. I think you'll get it lower. Steve? Abney. Like the chart, I think it has a little room left to run. Karen. Yes, well, after you browbeated me with, brow, I, I with excellent, with excellent points on every side, um, Microsoft. Got to buy some put. I'm going to stay long. Guy. You know, the Padres from San Diego are in town, and I happen to know for a fact that their entire coaching staff and manager are huge Fast Money fans, so I'm sure they're in the clubhouse right now before the game Why? watching Fast I'm Money. Sure that's so a shout-out to the Pods. Nothing better to do. <laughs> Waiting I mean, to lose. why do you say like that? APA Corp, Mel, you want to look at that chart? That's a good-looking chart right there, sister. All right. Thanks so much for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.